Okay, well, here is me, Patrick Hutchinson, CEO of the Australian Meat Industry Council, uh, long-time listener, uh, third-time uh, uh, interviewee, I suppose, with the Ag Watchers podcast and uh, looking forward to uh, yet another scintillating uh, discussion with the uh, with the lads. Just want to just want to before we before we go on, I just want to confirm that the audio quality is usually terrible in this podcast, and and it might be worse because Matt's booked us into a trailer park uh, overnight, <laughs> and so we're both sitting here in our singlets drinking a wife beater, sorry, uh, <laughs> drink, drinking Bundy at eight o'clock in the morning, uh, like all the rest of the locals here. And uh, at least, we're, at least we're not, at least we're not with the meth group over in the corner. So. Yeah, yeah it does feel a bit like deliverance. And, but you, uh, know, you know how it is. The guy, the guy outside you're... playing his banjo. So, so you're fitting <laughs> in, that's what you're saying. Well, that, the guy <laughs> playing the banjo is me. <laughs> Squeal, piggy. Uh, right up. Should we get into the uh, the sixth sense before we before we go on? We should. Please do. <clears throat> Patrick's a seasoned veteran of this. He probably knows what we're going to say. To each one of them. Matt, <laughs> I'll kick it off then. Uh, labour issues. Continuing. Small good manufacturing in Australia. Solid. Crocs footwear. Comfortable. Good, good. good. Uh, unfashionable. Uh, that's the other choice you could have had. Um, thick meat. Disgusting. Challenging. Didn't expect that response. Is that our six, Andrew? I can't remember. You got one more. I reckon six, was it? I can't remember now. Ah, well, that's all right. That's an interesting, that's an interesting answer, though, Patrick. I was uh, expecting, uh, expecting something... You know, yeah. You know, I guess uh, I, I thought you'd go straight away to maybe some of the positives, but I, I guess it can be challenging. Absolutely, mate. I suppose we, that's what we're going to uh, have a chat about. But um, um, when all the singing and dancing and hugging and kissing is done, uh, getting down to actually making them work uh, to your advantage often can be uh, uh, a little bit more challenging uh, than uh, is viewed on the uh, viewed on the surface. Mm. I see. Um, so, so let's have a chat about free trade. What, what's we've had a few free trade agreements in recent weeks and months. What's what's yeah? Look, we look. We can go all the way back to the the tranche that that we had. I mean, we had Japan and Korea, then China, um, uh, and even before that, the US. Um, and it's only been uh, in the last few months that the US uh, quota arrangements have uh, has obviously ceased. Um, uh, but, um, you know, and, and, and that's, that's part of the challenges is that you often in these, um, agreements have different mechanisms. So as we grow in protein supply as a nation, uh, from a global perspective, you then find yourself in certain free trade agreements where there's snapback measures or there's protection measures or there's quota measures or there's tariff measures that inevitably keep you, uh, your growth in check, for want of a better term. So we look at the UK and, uh, you know, that's going to be, it is 
uh, and they are fantastic outcomes. We look at the UK, 35,000 tonnes of beef and 35,000 tonnes of sheep meat to start, but it's incremental. Um, trying to ship outside of quota is cost prohibitive and, um, you know, it's a quota-driven market. So the quota management uh, is undertaken by the federal government. Uh, quota then becomes something of value. Uh, it is traded between uh, or utilised between um, uh, different companies in Australia and then, you know, it grows, it grows from there. Um, India for sheep meat is, is obviously looking good because that's just a clear reduction in tariff. Um, uh, Indian IACPA with Indonesia, uh, uh, there's still a lot of different areas that we need to work through around, uh, certainly around halal requirements and, and other, other, other things of that nature. Um, and obviously, um, Japan and Korea has been great. China is one that ha has a great uh, FTA, but uh, trading conditions have been challenging. And then finally, you know, we're staring down the barrel of uh, uh, of an EU FTA, um, but there are challenges that go with that too. So key component is that we can do all these things and create them and grit them, and 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 it is and it is uh, obviously fantastic. However, it's then you know our ability to be able to supply them and reading my EP three newsletters as I do and seeing, you know, heavy lambware out there, you know, these are the sorts of things that, you know, do give you the opportunity. But once you, uh, you know, you, you can sometimes also spread yourself thin as well as the local market to their biggest. Mm, that's the actual question I was going to go to because you, you gave us a great summary of, of not just the most recent trade deals like your Indonesia and your UK one, um, but also, you know, the swag we've got with other countries that are now, incredibly you know um important destinations for our red meat right like um like your japan's and south korea's and and us and whatnot um that was a question that i was going to go to was have we you know have we got the capacity in terms of production to provide especially when you start looking at big uh players like india could become or, or you mentioned the quota system with the uk and how it's going to ramp up over the decade that i think for sheep meat if we, if we got to those levels that would make them the third biggest uh, destination, you know, and, and we've already got some pretty hefty volumes going to other destinations. So have we got the livestock and the product and also have we, within the supply chain, have we got the labour to... Um... Why does that matter? <clears throat> like, it wouldn't, it wouldn't matter. Like, if you've only got... If there's X amount of demand, but you only have 50% of that demand, it doesn't really matter because all it is about opening doors, you have your access. It doesn't matter if you can fulfill... That's, that's, that's true, but... Uh, in a lot of circumstances, even though you may have quota and you may be able to fill it, if you're not actually filling it and then someone else who does have quota does or there is other opportunities for other markets to take market share, and we've seen that with the US and China, mm. uh, it's then hard to get that back. So you got to remember, you know, we're manufacturers. We take a whole from a producer, we disassemble it, and then we sell the parts all over the world. Um, now, a lot of people were uh, misinterpreting our strength in China as as they heard a lot of politicians pontificate uh, on both sides of the house about, oh, well, you know, red meat industry putting all its heads in one basket and, you know, Hutchinson's nuts. You know, why is he talking about this so much in regards to China, et cetera? It's because the China helps underpin value of lifestyle. Mm -hmm. as, you know, other markets can and do based on their own um, 
their own specs, uh, the grids, and everything that goes it goes with those. But then we've also got all of the uh, the fifth quarter products, you know, all of your offal and all of your other areas that make that make value. What China was doing was making value out of things that in some cases had no value. So that was further underpinning margins uh, that I know that you guys obviously report on from a processor perspective, but then gave them the opportunity to be more competitive as uh, as we progress and also then make sure that we're competitive globally. So we can be losing tariff and we can be gaining quota and we can be uh, expanding market. But if we're uh, in a situation, however, where we're still um, not competitive because of price and that price is due to rebuild and supply and, and the price is also based around uh, you know, other other factors, including uh, you know, exchange rate and movements, et cetera, then in fact, um, uh, we were still, uh, regardless of those things, they don't have to take the product. So therefore, um, uh, we still lose out. So the key component in, in market access, in, in our view, is not only just getting the technical side right and getting the trade parameters right, but then understanding the supply side right in order to ensure that we can then, you know, have a supply chain that is extracting value for everybody, which allows everyone to invest and allows everyone to to grow. So mm. that's that's where that balance lies, guys. So FDAs help us and further trade agreements and trade packs that we've also seen, which helps, you know, FTA with ASEAN. Uh, but, you know, we've got an FTA with ASEAN. We've got an FTA directly with Malaysia. Uh, and there's also, um, you know, other trade group, uh, other trade packs like RCEP and, and things like that. Yet we still, uh, volumes to Malaysia are still low and, and still struggle because of things outside of that parameter being areas like um, technical market access around things like halal. So we need to be, you know, and it's about taking all of that ball around Putting a putting a kilo putting a carton of meat into a container, all of that ball of issues together with obviously logistics, and and then being able to set a strong message back to uh, grassroots producers about managing expectations because it's it's interesting in most parts that it's never processes or AMIC that get sent on delegations overseas to talk on FTAs in a lot of circumstances. It's farming groups. That sounds well, it, it it plays well, but when the dust is settled, it's up to us to make them work because we're the exporters, and we're the ones who own the quota, and, and we've got to make it work for the benefit of, um, of uh, not only just producers, but, you know, everyone who we employ and the regional centres that uh, that a lot of our guys underpin. At the end of the day, it's a, it's a, it really is, trade agreements are really not a farm thing, they're a post-farm gate. Oh, absolutely. I mean, absolutely, because... Whether it's grain, whether it's livestock. It's, 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 yeah. Hmm. That's, it's, you know, it's 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 my guys who've got the offices overseas. It's my guys who are working with, you know, organisations like MLA or um, others with, with, with grain or dairy or horticulture uh, or seafood, and they're making it all work. Now, you know, in a lot of circumstances, livestock is unique um seafood often you know the, the seafood companies also own the boats and then they also own the product and they also send it off um 
uh, grain relatively similar in, in some ways, I suppose, uh, depending on you know ownership structures. But um, when it comes to obviously when it comes to to um, to meat, uh, those companies are buying raw material off farmers. And, you know, it's not a collective, it's not a cooperative, it's not anything else. It's it's all based on you know uh, a range of different specifications for a range of different products, and then being able to then place them in markets all over the world and continue to keep trading. So, you know, it's I, I guess for your listeners, a lot of which are, are obviously producers. The thing is, is that uh, you know the post farm gate industry is the proverbial duck on the pond. We're below the water. We're just paddling as fast as we can in order to ensure that we can continue to keep these supply supply chains and these trade routes open. Patrick, um, you, we mentioned at the outset with the Sixth Sense labour issues, and you think you said it was ongoing or continuing was your answer. Um, you've outlined there already and mentioned a couple of times about the, the capacity, I guess, to supply some of these um, customers as we, as, as we enter into or, or as we go down the pathway of some of these free trade agreements. Is is a, the potential pinch points or, or bottlenecks? A, a, if you had to kind of pick the production side and and and, this, and the ability to rebuild you know, successfully and have product, or is that is that one of your bigger concerns, or is it actually things like that uh, ability to get the labour side sorted out? Which of the two of those would would be keeping up more at night? Well, it's been quite interesting, uh, Matt, as. as- um, as we know, and you guys have reported over the last few years, that with the rebuild has come COVID. So, and then with coming with COVID has been an impact on our labour. So we've sort of dropped labour at the same time we've dropped supply. So certainly in 2020, 2021, um, you know, we, whilst we were struggling with labour, we, we had that smaller supply, which in turn allowed us the opportunity to not have as a bigger impact. But, you know, we're seeing reports from MLA uh, only last week that um, for all intents and purposes, um, there's going to be a 12% increase in cattle slaughter this year alone. Now, our guys often find ways to be able to to meet those challenges. And even though, you know, we, we hear uh, and, and certainly hear from me about the fact that um, um, the fact that you know, processes say, oh, well, we haven't got the labour, we can't do this, we can't do that, but they inevitably find a way. What um, uh, what I find is is that in in what's been discussed from processes now is they're now starting to say, we don't think we're going to find a way. We don't think that there's anything else. So I'm sitting on this with NFF, um, uh, this Agriculture Worker Task Force with Minister Murray Watt and the unions looking at a huge amount of different pillars in the whole structure to try and find a way to present a, a, a definitive agricultural workforce um, program that's going to be there for the next, I'm hoping, uh, you know, it's going to be solving issues short, medium and long term, but it's got to be working for the next 20 years. And yeah, part of that's something- got to... So I was just going to say yeah. something like robot, something like robotics or the advancement of robotics and the take up in parts of the the plant. With that, that's not a, a solution at all. It, it can help Look, some it's, of the problems. It's, it's not going to. No, 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 yeah, it's part of the solution, um, but it's not. It's not, it's not the whole, right? I mean, look, every every uh, um, uh, RDC globally in our industry 
has looked at one stage or other about tele-robotic processing facilities, but in the end, it, it just doesn't uh, it doesn't lend itself to 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 that ability. So when you when you're a manufacturer and you're disassembling products, you know that's that's uh, you know that's you know you, you do need people, you do need um, you know the intricacies that people can provide. Um, but uh, more and more, we're seeing the intervention of automation robotics. Uh, to be helping us with that, we invest a lot in those areas uh, with research and development. Um, we're looking at, you know, the new training methods, gamification, um, uh, the use of robotics in storage, um, uh, in uh, loadout, uh, in a whole range of other things like that. So don't, all of those things are there, but necessarily it doesn't um, uh, solve all of the puzzles. We need to be having a uh, consistent and strong, and uh, you know, a stable workforce, and part of that is an international workforce. So, um, you know, and that's where we're you know, moving through very slowly. Uh, unions, uh, you know, in some ways, feel justified that there's a concern on you know, you know worker protections and whatever else, but. The meat industry is very different to anyone else in agriculture in that, you know, we're looking for a lot of workers and, uh, but we're looking for, you know, permanent, permanent residents full time to get moving and, and to get going. So it's not the three month watermelon pickers uh, or anything like that. So I think we're still trying to get through that and in areas in, in issues like housing um, is, is very, very key. Uh, the um, uh, you know, how do you manage families, especially for things like the Palm Scheme, uh, is also a very difficult thing for us to work through. But we've seen as well, uh, you know, TFI uh, or Thomas Foods, um, you know, recently opening the Burke Goat Abattoir again and making investments in that. We've seen JBS open the Cobram uh, facility again yesterday with about twenty million dollars of investments there. We're seeing uh, expansions uh, from organisations like Greenham's. Uh, and if you go over to the West, uh, they're continually making investments and we're seeing the um, uh, the expansion of organisations like Minerva who are taking on smaller facilities facilities, and then uh, creating them to be you know, single, single opportunity um, uh, facilities. So, look, there's lots of different areas that we're seeing and building and, and opportunity. The key is is that that capacity needs to be realised, and politicians, state and federal, need to recognise that we've got to be tackling this the labour issue to assist farmers and to assist rural communities and to assist supply chains. Yeah, I've I've heard touted, and it might have been from you in a previous podcast or just in general chats um, that that the current shortage in that abattoir abattoir workforce is something around fifteen thousand. Would that be about right? I mean, I know. We, yeah, that's I, about. That's about yeah. right, especially down the supply chain too, because we got to remember that, you know, we can be doing well in the processing facility, but if transportation is struggling and or if cold logistics storage and that is struggling or we're seeing holdups, et cetera, at ports and facilities, it metastasizes back down the supply chain, holds things up, causes problems with uh, kill agendas, causes problems with, you know, extricating livestock. Um, and, you know, this is the year. Uh, that if La Nina is pulling back, um, although you know you live in the Southern Highlands, you wouldn't think that at the moment in Australia. But that being said, if La Nina does pull back uh, and we does do see some normality and we do see more livestock hit the market, 
you know, this is what this is when we're really going to see the uh, the impact because 2021 and 22 has seen short supply rebuild, and you know we've been able to limp certainly limp through 2022. If all, all things point to what we're set, what we're talking about, and some normality, then uh, you know this is when we're really going to see what the impact of of a uh, of a disjointed labour market is going to uh, and other areas is going to are going to have an impact. No, fair enough. No, good points. Now, I would like to flick across from the the supply side labour issue and go back to the demand aspect and. With the, like I said, with the change of government, particularly uh, with some of the tensions we had trading into China, uh, mostly for the beef space, really, I guess, uh, you know, and 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 lobster fishes in that in that meat meat protein space. Um, not so much for sheep meat that sailed through pretty unscathed. But um, do, you, do you what's your thoughts there in terms of it looks like there's the beginning of some kind of thaw there? Um, but uh, you know, it's not going to be an immediate thing, is it? That we're just going to um, kind of go back to to, to more normal trade. Uh, scenario there, you know, still going to take some time to work through um, some of those lingering issues that we had um, in the previous government. Yeah, and look, it goes a little bit back to what Andrew said about, well, you know, does it matter, uh, you know, if the, everything's open, everything's accessed? You, you know, the uh, the one with the most, uh, the one offering the most money wins. Um, the the situation there is that certainly on beef, we've lost uh, we've lost ground to to the US. Now, as we know, with the US cattle cycle and what's going on with that at the moment, they're going to start to feel the pinch that we've been feeling. And so their ability to be able to supply is going to be uh, obviously impacted uh, quite uh, quite greatly, which then means we will start to claw some of that back. So even though if we get access, it doesn't necessarily mean that uh, we then uh, uh, are going to be, still be um, you know, in a, in a competitive marketplace. Now, all that being said, there's still a lot that needs to be gone through, and we know that there's been meetings between uh, uh, foreign ministers. Um, we know next week that there is going to be an initial discussion uh, between trade ministers. So, you know, obviously you can imagine what I'm doing uh, behind closed doors prior to those sorts of meetings. However, uh, and, and again, you know, the key thing for us is, is the simplicity around uh, the fact that we've already got the data that um, uh, and the structures that China needs to review G to government to government G to G um, to take to lift those temporary suspensions uh, is all there. There's also two very large sheep meat processing plants that are also temporarily suspended. So you know they didn't sheep meat didn't escape too uh, uh, unscathed, obviously. So look, I, look again, we've got to then look at it from that component about uh, what sort of product that China would be then looking for, what sort of cuts, specs, et cetera, where does the chilled high-valued, where does the frozen commodity structure go in there for beef, how is that going to then compete against uh, or, or for commodity product that may be going to the US or may be going to Indonesia or may be going into ASEAN or somewhere else, or that chilled or, or more chilled high-valued cuts, especially as uh, you've pointed out with the the turning on of of the UK, um, uh, you know, the, again, uh, Japan and Korea uh, as well. Um, so that, it's it's all, uh, as we said, it's all there and all open and going to be there. Um, I think more importantly, it's the our ability to be able to access all markets globally, 
with, uh, we all know, with the best beef, sheep and goat meat the world uh, the world can get access to is always Australian. Um, and, uh, yeah, and then our ability to be able to do that. So they're going to all be the components. But, look, uh, the, the work with China will be, um, uh, will be methodical. But we are ready. Uh, we have all the information to provide them that they need to lift temporary suspensions. Um, so it's just going to be a case of, of moving forward. But we're having dialogue. And as I said over the last number of years, when I've asked this question a thousand times, is that, um, one, China reserves the right as a sovereign nation to impose what it likes on on, on, trade, on trade. However, um, meat is different because it's not a blanket tariff ban or whatever else. These are temporary suspensions on technical issues. So as long as we're answering those technical issues, they have an ability to um, uh, to then um, lift those temporary suspensions and uh, trade can, you know, normal trade resumes. So we're lucky in that sense. And not forget that uh, we sent about 160,000 tonnes of beef to China last year alone as well. So... Yeah, that's right. Despite all those, yeah, despite all those issues, they were nearly well. They were battling with South Korea as the second uh, most, you know, um, highest mm. destination for volume. So, considering right. considering all the issues and and the high global price of the Australian product, um, you know, yep. compared to some of our competitors, they they still they still kind of performed reasonably well with all those. Most definitely, considered. most definitely. Yeah. yeah. And it's an issue, and like what you're saying there too, with the with the the rising, I guess, market access that the US has, has been able to um, penetrate into China. At the time that they were doing that, taking market access away from us, they also into the US. They allowed Brazil back in, and and so we've actually lost some market share mm-hmm. to Brazil in America as well. Um, if you look over the, the last year and a half or so, um. Which, which will be interesting to see how that how that develops. Um, like you said, once they once they revert back to a herd rebuild in the next year or so, and and, and we potentially might be looking at some level of a of a decline in our herd if we get you know if we switch across back to a El Nino and a drier period, um, we could see a little bit of a repeat of fourteen fifteen where the US is uh, rap, you know, aggressively searching for for beef and and we might be able to provide some more. Or do you think that they have now got a taste for the Brazilian product, so it's going to be pretty fiercely competitive? Oh, we've also got some very strong markets over there and we've been supplying there for, you know, containerized for 50 years and alone um, frozen well, you know, well, well past that. Um, you know, we've now got uh, unfettered access uh, via our, um, uh, our FTA or the cessation of, of, of quota structures. So I think that um, uh, not, not that it had an impact anyway, but it was still, it, it's still there. Um and so you know, and, and and you know, we we are a supplier of choice. I mean, we're the only country in the world that, uh, as I'm aware, that is supplying um, uh, beef, uh, ground beef for for McDonald's America. So there's a lot of different opportunities there, and the American market continues to uh, uh, to be exceptionally stable, and obviously for sheep meat as well, and goat meat uh, is very uh, remains you know exceptionally stable and a good place to do business. So. Look, I think, um, you know, price will obviously be a factor. And, and uh, you know, it's been interesting seeing some of the media reporting in, in Australia about livestock price uh, as though people were falling from great hypes that uh, um, that all of a sudden that they're, you know, they're, they're all going to go, they're all going to go broke. Uh, mm-hmm. Whereas then 
you know, sort of near the end of some of these articles that then says, oh, by the way, uh, you know, it's still you know, 30% of over the five-year average or whatever it might be like that. So I think, um, you know, the key component for a supply chain of any nature, whatever widget that it is, is ensuring that everybody can uh, um, uh, remain profitable through the process. So it doesn't mean necessarily one should be far more profitable than another, but it's got to be about that profitability allows for reinvestment and growth. Uh-huh. And, you know, certainly we've profit. struggled with that. I think that's, that's the thing we've spoken about before is that there's a sort of view that uh, anyone beyond the farm gate is out to get the farmer. But the reality is everyone's mm. going to make a crust. Uh, because without, oh, absolutely. Without, without, absolutely. Farmers, without farmers, there's no processes, and without processes, there's no farmers. But, but more than that, Andrew, I mean, you, you've got to look at as well the structure that we have in this country is very different to the rest of the world. I mean, no forward contracting, uh, an ability to be able to utilise a, uh, a sort of a market advantage. I mean, look, other than watching Yellowstone, I don't think many people are going to be seeing very much in the area of how sale barns work in America. But, you know, it's low numbers um, and, you know, they're not, it's not really, you know, it, it, it does set some tone in regards to price, but overall Chicago futures is setting price. And so we, we've got sale out price, we've got over the hooks price, you know, the further north you go, you do get the, um, uh, then you've got certain classes of livestock that are then taking on live export price. Uh, you've got feeder cattle. Uh, price and and the thing is they're all in the one mix from the one farm. You're not eleven states in the US in the southeast that are only cow calf and only sell then into you know uh, um, uh, only sell into the uh, central west uh, massive feedlots and and the like and then it gets processed. We've got many different variables, so I think that that allows in some cases farmers to make decent money and allows them to be more competitive. But in other areas, it then is the vagaries of markets and more importantly, the vagaries of, mar- of, um, of uh, I guess, the capacities that have then, you know, give us these ebbs and, you know, these large ebbs and flows. So, look, I think we've got a great opportunity to really, you know, uh, set a solid base over the next few years with good, good supply and um, uh, better market access. But we've got to be getting the fundamentals right as well. And this is our time to set this for the next 15 years, not try to live year to year. Absolutely. So funny enough, you, you mentioned one of the things, we're going to have to leave pretty soon. Uh, but you mentioned uh, small goods manufacturing in Australia was solid. Uh, Absolutely. So, so funny enough, we are this morning going out to visit uh, a small goods manufacturer. Uh, the Southern Hemisphere's largest producer of haggis. Uh, and h- how do you think you guys represent small goods manufacturing? But are you seeing any major challenges for those guys? Yeah, look, I mean, other, other than obviously labour, uh, mm-hmm. which I think uh, we, won't, we don't need to go over again. Um, uh, look, pork supply still is remaining fairly fairly solid, as we know, uh, exceptionally competitive on a fresh market against beef based on price uh, in Australia uh, and, and and then obviously then relating into consumption. Um, I think that challenges as well as a number of 
of mistruths, et cetera, around consumption and around um, nitrates and, and the like, which we have to continue to keep balancing. But, uh, you know, it's a $4 billion a year uh, business in Australia, um, small business manufacturing. Um, last year was the inaugural um, ANIC Australian Charcuterie Awards. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, we saw 450 entries. We saw from uh, absolute uh, behemoth corporates right down to, um, you know, corner store, deli or, or, or independent retail butchers competing against each other, uh, one beating the other. And, and that, that process for us is growing uh, from a competitive nature to the point that um, we're about to embark on uh, an alignment with IFA where our small goods products will then be potentially judged and competing on a global scale. So I wonder, you know, I wonder Andrew, what's the process, Patrick, to get a gig as a judge on that particular uh, panel? Uh, very, very, uh, very sought after, but ex- very difficult because uh, uh, your expertise above blood pudding and haggis needs to be very, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, very broad. Um, uh, and you know some of the people that uh, uh, that we had as our judges last year, uh, they're called Fleischmasters and uh, other things like that. So um, a bit a bit of training to go, boys. But uh, out of our out of our league, league, it sounds like uh, once once we you, get you past got the it. grounding, you got the yeah. grounding. We should start working. Start working at lunchtime today. <laughs> we'll just we'll just work from there. Right, right, Patrick, we, we are going to have to, I guess, love you and leave you uh, because uh, we've, got to, we've got to pay the bill for this uh, this this trailer. Uh, so get out, we have to get out before the meth heads get up. All I do is hope you just pay. If you're going to pay, I just hope you're paying cash. I hope you don't have to pay me. <laughs> so. uh, you wouldn't want to walk around with cash here, Patrick. Jeez, that's a dangerous, <laughs> dangerous prospect. But when you're, when you're independent, Analysts now, you know, we just you got to just kind of mind the pennies, don't you? Got to, got to, got to, got to watch the cash. Uh, although it could have been better if we had a swag and just let them back in you. But anyway, uh, and and closer, good bonding, <laughs> double, double swag, King swag. So it may not be, so it may not be safer. That's what you really. Say. <laughs> uh, that's fine for, for one of us. Well, I'll leave you Breakback Mountain Boys to you to your uh, your swags and trailers, and um, uh, it's been fantastic to uh, once again be speaking to you. And uh, he's hoping for some uh, good well, training conditions coming we'll into twenty three. We'll, we'll keep an eye on our social media today, and you'll see some more more packed in more, park more uh, footage from uh, the Southern Hemisphere's largest haggis white pudding and black pudding producer. Absolutely, looking forward to seeing that. And, Fantastic. Uh, should, should be one of your members, I guess. I don't know. Well, if they're not, I uh, you can. Uh, I'll send you a membership form straight away. Yeah, we'll have we'll have we'll have a chat with the uh, with the owners and tee it up. All right. Well, it's been great having you on. Yeah, fantastic with the insights as always, Patrick. It was great to um, make the time for us. So I appreciate you coming on, and um, we'll see you when you got nothing on, mate. Yeah. No worries. Any time, boys. Ciao for now. <laughs>